Welcome back to the Tapes Archive podcast, where we release interviews that have never been heard before. In this episode, we have R.E.M.'s guitarist, Peter Buck. At the time of this interview in 1989, Buck was 33 years old and was starting to tour for his band's sixth album, Green. In the interview, Buck talks about the early days of R.E.M., his love for Lou Reed, the trappings of success, and whether R.E.M.'s music is commercial or inaccessible. The King's Room. The Elvis bathroom. Everybody knows that the bathroom was Elvis's favorite place, and he did indeed die in a bathroom. So we felt it would be good to have a little memorial hall for him. Here we have books to read everywhere. This is this lovely velvet painting. Um, they sell these out on the highway outside of town. Someone named B painted it. As always, we have music critic Mark Allen at the helm conducting the interview. If you'd like to support the show, please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. There, we post other content and information not available on the podcast. If you'd like to read the transcripts for any of our episodes, please head over to our website at thetapesarchive.com. We'll jump into the interview after a quick word from our sponsors. The Tapes Archive is proud to be sponsored by the true crime documentary, Dead Man's Line. You've got a hundred armed officers around here trying to get a shot at me. I dared him to shoot me. I didn't go down there to be a buffoon. I went down there for vengeance. And by God, I'll have vengeance. In 1977, Tony Karitsis kidnapped a mortgage broker and held him captive for three days. For the first time ever, the media was able to cover the event live. To some, Tony was a hero. To others, he was a crazed thug. Dead Man's Line. The true story of Tony Karitsis. This award-winning film is available exclusively on Amazon Prime. One last thing before we get to the interview. The Tapes Archive podcast is a proud member of Osiris Media, a global community connecting passionate fans with podcasts and experiences about artists and topics you love. Thanks for tuning in, and now it's time to open the vault. Hello. Uh, hi, this is Peter. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, this is Mark Allen. Hey. How you okay. Well, let me start up by asking you. I'm looking at all this material that's that's been sent along with the the new album, and everything talks about you being more accessible. And I never thought of you as inaccessible. Did you think you were inaccessible before? I don't know. I mean, I always felt that we were fairly commercial. I mean, when you compare us to our peer group, I, we were always the most commercial band. You know, I mean, my peer group being, whether it's Love Tractor or Sonic Youth or, or like the Pixies Now or something, we were always the one that seemed like, you know, we'd be more successful. But when you compared us to what was on the radio, say, in 1983, we were a little bit less accessible than Berlin or Missing Persons or whoever. Times have changed. I look at stuff in the charts now that I just can't believe in the charts, like Tracy Chapman. Five years ago, that a, a black female folk singer singing, you know, pretty political stuff, selling two million copies. That's just, you know, that's unheard of, or would have been unheard of. So for us, you know, so we've just been wandering around. We made a record that probably people understand lyrically a little bit better. I don't know. I mean, I never really understood a lot of the criticism anyway. This is what we do. Yeah, this isn't even really criticism. I mean, this is even from your own label and your yeah. own bio. It says that. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I think they're trying to reassure themselves. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I, you know, I guess when I listen to this record, I guess just because the lyrics are more straightforward, that makes it accessible. But musically, it's kind of a weird record. People never notice that. People, most most people that are that listen to rock and roll probably have some experience in in like going to college and at least in, in like writing things, going to college and reading books and analyzing lyrics, so that you can make a really weird musical record and as long as the lyrics are understandable well it's successful and no one's really mentioned that on this record there are very few real choruses that a lot of the songs just kind of don't have real arrangements they just kind of wander around some there, are, there aren't, isn't, aren't repeat, repeated phrases as hooks but, you know that to me is like the first thing I think about when I heard the record but you know it's more accessible because you can understand all the lyrics so you think you're inaccessible now you know um, I think that what we do is is Quite often, we're, we're judged by how much people understand literally. Like, what is this song about? Whereas, to me, I think, well, gosh, you know, we, we're, we have probably one of the weirdest harmonic senses of kind of rock and roll bands that have records in the top 40. The harmonies, the, the bass parts, the, the structuring of the songs is fairly strange, and no one notices that. So, I guess we you know, put it across okay. I mean, Prince is, is probably the only guy in the top 20 that's stranger than we are. I think the guy's probably a genius, so I'm good for him. I, I could never understand why Love Sexy wasn't a big hit, because Alphabet Street was a great song. And uh, another thing that people are saying is that Green is supposed to be uplifting. And I, I, when I listen to it, I don't think of it as, as particularly uplifting. Do you? Um, I think it means more so than Document. I mean, there are some songs that I don't think are uplifting at all, and Michael obviously does. You know, for example, something like Wrong Child, which to me is, is fairly depressing pressing song, you know, about a crippled child or whatever, and to Michael, the fact that the character has accepted it is kind of uplifting, and I guess in a way it is, but to me it just depresses me. Something like a You're the Everything, Worldly Pretend, I think are real kind of, I mean, for us, you know, we're never going to be a, a happy party band, you know. No, but is, isn't there a line on uh, You're the Everything, something about not being optimistic, or... Uh... What am I thinking of? Um, God. You know, it, it, there's no... It, geez, maybe I'm just confusing it with something else. I could have sworn that was the song where um, I don't think the word optimism is in there, but... Um, yeah. You know, it's a song about tearing down barriers and borders. Right. Okay. So, along those lines, is there is there reason to be optimistic? Maybe not. <laughs> and, and that's probably a good reason to, to make music that's a little bit more optimistic. You know, I mean, from us, Document was a fairly angry record, and I don't really want to have a career of manufacturing anger. I mean, I, I can, I'm probably angrier now than I was in 1986, 87, whatever that was. But, you know, I think maybe in kind of dark years, something that's, that's a little bit more up and pleasant isn't necessarily a really bad thing. Is there a reason you're more angry now? Well, you know, it's fairly obvious. The environmental problems, the racism is just like, I mean, it's kind of cool again to be a racist. I mean... Almost every political campaign I see appeals on some level to subliminal racism. I get I get sick and I walk the streets of New York and see little kids sleeping in gutters. I mean, it hasn't been that bad since Dickens' day. And really, the government didn't do anything about it. It's, you know, it's a very sad thing. You know, I, I live in a place that doesn't have a ton of homeless and isn't really polluted. And so, I mean, it, it's, you know, it's things that I, I experience when I travel, but it's still... I mean, it's, we're obviously electing governments that are, that are saying, oh, don't worry, everything's fine. Don't worry, be happy. You know, that's... It really, I don't, I can't think of anything more insane. Isn't that more of a reason to make an album like uh, like Lou Reed just made, New York? I would think that if, if you're angry about things like that, it, it would be a time to come out and say, you know, this is ridiculous. Well, you know, that's that's what a lot of the document was about. Mm -hmm. And I bet Lou Reed doesn't make New York again. 
know, I mean, <laughs> well, if, if album sales are any uh, criteria, probably not. Probably the record company won't let them make it again. I, you know, I think it's a great record. Yeah. And, you know, it's like the voice crying out in the wilderness. But you don't really do those things twice, and we made that record for us, you know. Mm-hmm. We're never going to be as direct as the Reed, you know. We... we, we Assuming that we're both artists, we both work in different ways. And, and for us, Document was a fairly angry album. I mean, I, I, we'd never write a song where we mentioned Jesse Jackson or, you know, something like Dirty Boulevard, which is really straight and real direct. That's, you know, he's a storyteller, you know, like a, a guy that hangs at the bar and tells you things. And, and we're not quite that band. Is there a reason for that or just that's not the kind of people you are? I don't, you know, I don't know. Um, Michael being the lyricist. He's not a Lou Reed type person. I mean, he doesn't sit and tell stories and, and that kind of thing. I mean, he's probably more elliptical, more speaking, as well as writing lyrics as Lou Reed. I mean, not to say that it's not there and he doesn't think about those things. It's just, I, he tends to think, yeah, and I agree with him, with him to a certain degree, that, that being really specific and pointing fingers can take away, at least from what we do as a band. You know, I mean, I'm not going to mention names or vote Republican or vote Democrat or whatever. I think that it's, it's there and it's implicit in a lot of lyrics, especially on the last record, and in the things we say in public. You know, I mean, I love Lou Reed. I just, I couldn't write those songs. He couldn't write ours, either, for that matter. Not. He certainly couldn't sing them. But, uh... <laughs> I love his voice. He's one of my favorite voices in rock and roll, but he's, you know, very conversational as a singer. You know? Yeah, I mean, he's not really even a singer, for that matter. But, uh, I mean, at least I don't think of him as a singer, but I do think of him as a storyteller. But but uh, that brings up an interesting point, because, you know, I mean, there has been a lot of uh, uh, writing about uh, Orange Crush and being about Agent Orange and all this kind of thing and you know you really have to uh, well I, I, I got to admit I don't get it uh, and I, that was not what I would have associated the song with had I you know not known or not read what other people have said about the song is there a, a reason to be obscure is it important well you know I mean we could have called the song Agent Orange and I, it just I don't know for, for me that's a little bit too much I mean just not too much it's just I don't think most of the people I know most of the people I talked to got it I mean we got contacted by this Vietnam Vets organization and asked we donate the song to a film about Agent Orange called uh, Time for Action which we did you know they, they seem to understand it there are a million ways to tell stories you know and if you like O. Henry you're probably not going to like John what's his name Bartholomew Bartholomew the guy who's died you know I love his short stories but they're really surrealistic and elliptical and different and there are a million ways like I said to do things Lou Reed takes one tack you two takes another Dylan takes another we take one sometimes being really direct is something that that is real important sometimes it's not sometimes the way you approach something is just as important as, as what you say about it so we can pretty much expect that R.E.M. will never uh, write Good Evening Mr. Waldheim or anything <laughs> like that I, you know I wish I could I mean I wish that I mean just I mean on, on a separate ground other than lyrically musically Lou Reed writes stuff that's much more direct you know, all his songs are basically three chords in a 4-4 four, four rhythm and they're great songs you know I mean I wish I could have written almost every single one of the songs he's written but that's you know there are different ways to work and we don't do that and I really uh-huh. like his stuff. I know he likes us. We, we, we saw him a lot this summer. One of my favorite records is, is the first Zelda Underground album, which is fully direct. And then probably my second favorite is Astral Weeks, which I've listened to for 20-some years. I still have trouble getting a handle on it. Mm-hmm. I know what it's about emotionally. Intellectually, I'm not sure I get everything. It's interesting because I mean, when I'm sitting here on the phone and I'm talking to you, you know, I, I know what you're saying. And uh, uh, I guess in the songs, I don't. I often don't know. That's okay. You yeah. know, um, I'm mostly, to me, I mean, I talk to a lot 
lot of people. And, and obviously the ones who talk to me usually the ones that tend to like us. I mean, you know, the guy who hates you doesn't walk up and go, boy, you know, I don't like you. I mean, I don't hear that much. Yeah, people are pretty good about that. I mean, it happens once in a while, but, you know, very seldom does someone come and go, you know, I don't like you because of this. You know, they're usually just like, oh, fuck you, I don't like your stuff. So the kids I talk to or the people I talk to, maybe they're in the minority, but they seem to know what's going on. They, when, they, when they have interpretation of songs, you know, I mean, especially in the last couple of weeks, I don't really think that the songs need to be interpreted so much. I mean, I, I think they're fairly straightforward for us, but I don't know. I mean, it, it depends what you're used to. If you're used to Van Halen, I'm sure they were incomprehensible. <laughs> And this is, we said after our fan club, David Lee Roth is doing this interview and he's talking about modern music and he goes, and R.E.M., I just don't get it. I mean, I don't get it. And I thought, well, great, you know? I mean, I'm yeah, that, that should have made you really proud. It did. I mean, I figured, well, God, you know, I'm afraid I get Diamond Dave all too well. Yeah. And I loved Van Halen and I still do like Van Halen a lot, but it's kind of like, look at the, to David Lee Roth's solo record, you know? <laughs> Sorry. And that's what we said at the fan club. I thought it was funny. There's a lot of traditions in rock and roll and, you know, like Van Morrison pulled in a lot of weird poetic aspects from you know Irish tradition stuff which we only heard of in like 1968 69 to this day he's still writing kind of I mean it has more to do with, with Yeats and, and Blake than it has to do with Chuck Berry and Jelly Roll Moore well enough about that huh? <laughs> well, no, I mean I don't want talking about stuff like this I'm, you know I hope I don't sound defensive or anything cause yeah, no no not at all I'm just uh, I, it's interesting to you know to hear how you approach it and, and why and uh, you know I guess it, it just seems to me that, that audiences uh, get dumber and dumber, and uh, you have to be pretty direct. Like, uh, Could be. But then again, you know, Springsteen is real direct, and, and nobody understood Born in the USA. So. Yeah, well... So it films the concert, and people were waving flags. So <laughs> I, I think you make a big mistake to say, well, gee, people are really stupid. I have to pander to them. Because I think that people aren't that stupid. I mean, a lot of people are, but you're not going to reach them anyway. I'm not going to write a song for an eight-year-old. You, know? mm -hmm. um, you have to approach it the way you approach it and I'm sure that Springsteen when, I mean when he made that record Born You Say the whole album he knew it was a real negative portrayal of America and boy you know I mean everyone starts waving flags and, and Ronald Reagan starts quoting it George Will writes a column about yeah sure here is this flag waving guy and you know it's like sorry it wasn't about that yeah. George Will who as much as I dislike him is a smart man you don't write for those people you write for yourself mostly and we do talk about it though I mean for the song Flowers of Guatemala on Blackstreet Pageant we talked for a long time about whether there should be another verse that that made a linkage between flowers and graves. And we thought, nah, I mean, I think enough people have heard where have all the flowers gone to know that that's what this is about. You know, I mean, you sing a song, a real pretty song, and talk about a real pretty place, and I think pretty much everyone knows what's going on in Guatemala. I don't think you have to make the third verse or fourth verse say, and it's a pity because of the death clock. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I seem to think that, that everyone got that. You've, uh, in some of the material I read, you said that you've been quoted as saying the trappings of success, the playing the big arenas, et cetera, you a little ambivalent are you doing anything specific to get around those trappings they're only trappings if you let them be trappings I mean if, if you just assume that well we have this talent and we're so great that we can do this we deserve it then you're bound to look like fools we're at the point where we're successful enough that we pretty much have to play the large places and I am ambivalent about that I don't really go to many of those shows but the ones I do go to I've, you know, I've seen Prince the big places I've seen Springsteen the big places and I like those shows there's a way to do it without selling yourself short or selling the audience short and I think 
awkward handling that really well, but I think it's important to be ambivalent about success, you know? I mean, I want to sell millions of records, and I want everyone to hear us, you know? But you have to know what you're getting into, you know? It's, and it's something that you have to guard vigilantly against every single day. You know, you could become a cartoon figure on, on Entertainment Tonight. And that's that's pretty much what happens to most arena bands. There's a way around it. I think that, that you know, we're ourselves, we're just in a bigger place. And I think we've been playing really well this tour, and... and I think we've, you know, met the challenge. And I've seen a lot of bands that, that happen. I, I see bands that I know and have grown up with that are like, you know, playing to a thousand people and they're already an arena rock band. You just got to be careful. I mean, he has in anything. The band's path to success was real interesting. I mean, you guys got to where you are so much differently than most other bands do. I mean, no, no amazing amount of commercial airplay. I mean, REM is certainly not, uh, you know, beaten into your head if you turn on the radio. Can you account for it? Is there? Did you do something, or was there something about REM that brought you to this level? Well, there was there was a point in time when we were, I think, starting out in the early '80s, '82, '83, when a, there were a large amount of people that, that liked rock and roll were just not having their needs met by the radio, and so you just had to kind of short circuit that. We played everywhere in the world. You know, we played all over little tiny towns. You know, we put out records that, that sold a hundred thousand. That was good, but we played everywhere. We made ourselves accessible, did lots of interviews, talked to people, and kind of got around the. I mean, we were we were never even on commercial radio until '86, um, '87 even. And by that point, we were selling you know 750,000 records. But a lot of bands have done that. I mean, Cream never had a hit single, really, did they? I mean, that's before my time. But they were you know they were well known. Hendrix, he sold tons of records. You know, um, you just have to kind of get around it. And we were arrogant enough to believe that we were good enough to kind of survive without having the next hit single. Was there a time, though, that, that you, I mean, did you ever get down on yourselves and just think, geez, you know, this is an extremely tough way to do it. Maybe we ought to just sell out. You know, I mean, I think if we knew how to sell out, there would have been at least some talk of it. But, I've, you know, I've been listening to music for, God, 25 years now, and since I was like five years old or something, and, and I don't really know what appeals to people commercially. I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't know how to go in and make a hit record. We knew that we were good, and we knew that we had to follow our own dictates, for better or worse. But there were definitely times when we'd look around and go, God, what are we doing? There were too many nights when we were in little, little clubs playing to like 30 people for 70 bucks, and the manager of the club was rude to us. And, you know, but then usually those 20 people liked it. Mm -hmm. and they'd talk to us, and, and it'd be like, well, see, we can come back here. We can sleep on someone's floor. We can do this. And as long as you have enough confidence in yourself and that gives at least something back from the audience, it's easy to keep doing it. When, when you uh, recorded Stand and you heard that back, you didn't say to yourself, geez, this is a hit? The second we wrote it, we all just started laughing, you know. <laughs> and Michael came and just, well, he heard it and he fell down on the floor. He just goes, oh, I've got lyrics for that. <laughs> and I heard it and, I, and we did kind of go, well, geez, if, you know, if we ever have written a hit, this sounds like it. But knowing us, it was kind of like, I, I have my doubts. I see, I can't tell. I mean, I thought that that would probably be the first single. But, you know, I thought Get Up was the one that would be the hit. I haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's early. Uh, singles come out, seem to come out slowly now. And, uh, maybe yeah, that's well, next. Yeah, there's this whole now, the new idea is that a record can last a year. It used to be, well, three months and it's over. I mean, even the Eagles records were gone in four months and they sold two million or something. Now, and you too, aren't they still releasing singles from that time? Yeah, probably. You know, our record came out eight months ago. And I think there's going to be one more single. Well, you mentioned uh, Springsteen. I mean, weren't there, there were probably six or seven singles off Born in the USA. Oh, yeah, that, yeah. That lasted for years. So. Yeah. You know, I kind of resent it in a way just because 
is it, you should there should be more room at the top and not just for us but when like when our record came out I was looking up and eight of the top ten people had been there for more than a year said, well that's just not very fair to the young bands I mean if everything you're playing is a year old and you everyone's heard it all anyway then you're not serving anyone except for the, the kind of dumb heads who want to hear the same thing over and over again you might as well just play Led Zeppelin well and, and along those lines that's what everybody's doing yeah and it's really depressing too to you know this the whole classic rock thing it's like great so 90% of what you play is a year old and the other or 50% the other 50% is 15 years old it must be hard being a kid now because how do you find out what you like I remember when I used to hear the Stones on the radio and Dylan and you know maybe it's only 10 but it seemed like there was always a new record now it's like Christ I mean I'm still hearing things from the last Michael Jackson record so you will uh, resent it uh, a year from now when they when they take a single off uh, off green and they say here's the new REM single um, I don't think that's going to happen there'll be a single out with this tour because that's the way it goes and I doubt it'll do anything but I mean yeah, when it's done it's done I mean I can't blame anyone I mean if someone said would you rather sell 4 million or 3 million I'd say well 4 million of course I'm not dumb but I think radio ought to probably step in and just say sorry you know when we've played a record you know Def Leppard I mean that's that record came out when we put out Document I think and that's two albums ago and eight tours and it's kind of like let's get on to the next album you know or something if, if you step back and, and I don't know if you're able to do this because you're so involved with it but if you could analyze your music for a minute do you have any idea what it is that people see in REM oh god that's I get asked that sometimes and I without being glib I really don't know I think we write good songs but then a lot of people like Elvis Costello writes great songs you know um, I don't know I think for me, meeting people that like us is that, that we in a way somehow reach out more than a lot of I hate to use like performer but performers do not like us personally but the records seem to mean a lot to people who buy them I guess that has a lot to do with Michael and lyrics and that it's an involving process even something like Stand which is fairly straightforward you can you, you maybe have to think about it a little bit more and I think people like that they like to discover things themselves and I think it was John Ford who said people always like a fact better if they discover it for themselves or truth better or something like that other than that I don't know for a long time we were about the only alternative I mean, there were good bands but they never toured you never saw them everything else was kind of boring and like 83 when Murmur came out there weren't many records like that maybe that's it that, that, the quote that you said about the, the fact and discovering it for yourself maybe that's it that, that because you weren't forced down anybody else's throat you know you really weren't played all the time on the radio and people weren't all raving and you weren't on all the covers of the magazines maybe that's why yeah I mean I get lots of letters like you, know, you should try to answer them at least in the postcard and I've got a lot of from lately from you know people that are like 22 and like well gee I've loved you guys since I was 16 horrifying thought as it is <laughs> Um, and you know I'll go then they'll say well gee I was really disappointed to, to see you have a big hit because you were my band but I like the new record anyway that kind of thing and I could see that I mean I know what it's like to like I remember Patti Smith I mean I thought she's the greatest thing in the world and then she had a hit single and it was like I didn't stop liking her but it was like well gee you know all of a sudden these kind of guys who went to Georgia Tech that I, that I knew were playing because of the night yeah. well gee you know her best record is probably Horses right absolutely <laughs> so, 
Yeah. In fact, it, 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 that may be her only good record, but I don't know. That's... I, I love her, but you got to admit, she's pretentious a lot of times. A lot of it's just bullshit, but it's the kind of bullshit that I like. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can buy it. The, the pseudo-literary poetic pretensions, garage band meets Rambo. Uh, you know, I, the, I, if you'd invented that for me, that's what it would sound like. You were uh, quoted, I think it was in the Boston Globe, as saying, uh, if we sold a million and a half copies of Murmur, we'd either be dead or broken or living in a boring mansion in Hollywood. And uh, I'm wondering, why would you think that? We've, we've had nine years to grow into this, you know, to, to practice playing in big places, to, to hone our songwriting. As much as we thought we were like really adults, when Murmur came out, I mean, you know, Michael was 20, I guess. I was 25. Well, no, Michael was 21. I was 24, 5. Oh, my God. Bill and Mike were 23. I don't know how people handle that kind of success. We weren't ready. We wouldn't have been able to play the big places. I wouldn't have been able to handle all the TV stuff, the, the madness that goes with the hit record. It just it would have been too much for us. It is, we, we've had nine years to kind of figure out what we're doing and how to do it. And I'm real confident. I'm not afraid that, gee, I have to follow up this green with a big hit record. I don't have to do anything. All I have to do is write good songs and record them well and make a good record and if it doesn't sell you know I'm confident enough to know what to do I mean look at the Go-Go's they were they're pretty much our peer group they're a little bit older than us but success ruined them I mean I love that first record and there are good spots on the other two records but three records and massive success and each record sells less than the one before it and everyone starts arguing about songwriting and someone leaves the band and then the band breaks up it's like it wasn't good for them at all <laughs> how do you pick where you record your albums I mean you've recorded in some not exactly out of the way places, but maybe you know uh, unusual for for most bands. Every studio you got to figure has like good equipment. I mean, mm -hmm. just about everyone we're going to look at has what we need. It's got to be real comfortable as far as you like the people there, you like the way it's set up, so you can get away from the music. You get to feel good about living there for four weeks. And then for us, it's good to be in a smaller town where there aren't as many distractions. We could go to New York, but it's like Christ, there's something to do every night: movies and restaurants and plays and bands. It's good for us to be someplace where we can concentrate only on working. Maybe you can shed some light on this, and this is a question I'm sure you've been asked a million times, but what is the deal with Athens? I mean, it's, it's, that's not exactly the place you would expect to be pumping out so many bands. You know, I really don't know. I mean, there, there's always been music here since you know, the 60s. I mean, lots of folk stuff, and there was soul bands, and a lot of my older friends, guys in their 40s, were like white guys that were backing up Marvin Gaye and stuff on tours in the South. And it just it continued. It's, it's a college town, a lot of college kids play music. And, um, and above that, I don't know. I think now a lot of people are moving here to, to be in bands. So, I mean, I can think of a lot of bands that, that specifically people moved here just to be in Athens. One other quote that I pull out of all these articles is uh, you from, you're saying, uh, you know, regarding the trappings of, of success and you still don't need a yacht, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but now that you are in the situation you're in, uh, do you have big plans? Going to buy a baseball team, anything like that? It's funny you mentioned baseball team. <laughs> no, um, a real good friend of mine uh, wants me to put in money into some minor league team. I don't know anything about baseball, you know, and I don't have that kind of money anyway. Basically, I just put it in bank, you know. I, I mean, you'd be a fool to think that this is going to last forever. And I have a nice house. I'm married. I, I, you know, I live near town. It's a nice house. I've got a car that runs, and I can buy as many records as I want. But my tastes are fairly simple. I mean, to me, going out and having a $30 dinner is a big deal. Uh -huh. um, I mean, it's, it, the amount of money you can make doing this is shocking. I don't think I've seen as much as some people have. But, you know, I mean, I just figure I'm going to put it away. I, and, you know, I bought my brother a house. So 
she'd set up and you know I, I take care of my family and stuff oh, that's nice yeah it's you know I mean it's a nice thing to do with the money I mean I was thinking about I could buy a Maserati or something but you know I don't really even like cars I, mean, I kind of have a antagonistic relationship with machines mm-hmm. so, I mean I've got a Jeep it's, it costs $17,000 <laughs> paid cash I think the guy's still lying on the floor <laughs> You didn't haggle with them, did you? I walked in and I said, listen, I've got exactly this much money. And I said, well, this is how much I want to pay. It was like seventeen eight or something. The guy goes, well, that's uh, about $1,000 less than what uh, we have on, on that sticker there. And I said, yeah, but it's exactly as much as I've got in my pocket. He went, what? And I just pulled out the envelope and handed it to him. I said, you count it. He counted it and said, see you later. So, <laughs> You know, I mean, I just happened to get a really big check in, and it was like I didn't have a car. This was last year. I, mean, I didn't. I didn't buy a car till last year. That's how cheap I am. And uh, you know, I mean, I ride my bike everywhere. So uh-huh. I just figured, hell, I'm tired of like borrowing cars to tote my amps to some club to play with somebody. So I need something to carry equipment. So I got a cheap. That's great. I mean, that's a, that's a wonderful story. You know, I mean, yeah. it's not no pretense at all. Yeah, I figured the guy would like would take my offer if if I had the cash right there. I mean, if I said, well, gee, I'll come back with the cash, that's one thing, but, you know, I mean, most of those guys don't see that kind of money, you know, it's like nobody pays cash. I said, here it is, take it. And, you know, I got it, I think I got it less than they paid for it. I mean, I think the guy was so stunned, it was like, oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah, he's probably never saw it in cash anyway. I mean, maybe yeah, in a check. Everyone in the whole car agency came over and, you know, counted out the money. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they all looked at me like, I think they all thought that was a drug dealer or something because it was all in $100 bills. And I just got, like, the biggest check I'd ever got pretty much from oil and stuff. I'm like, well, what the hell? I need a car. I need it bad. Because, you know, I was renting a car, like, once every other week to go to Atlanta to visit my mom or something. And it was like, this is stupid. Yeah. Paying budget rental money when I could buy my own car and not worry about it. So this was in Athens. Yeah. And they they didn't know who you were. I think they figured it out about halfway through the signing stuff. I I think that they just thought I was like laundering drug money or something. <laughs> I mean, it was just like, what the hell is going on here? Okay. Um, you're when you come to Indianapolis, you're um, it's it's sort of like kicking off another leg of the tour, isn't right. it? Yeah. Um, or, or, was it chosen to start here for any reason, or just scheduling? That's yeah, the way things work. Um, I think partially because we're going to have a day rehearsal in the place that we're playing at, and there are a few places to have days open beforehand. So, I mean, you know, we've been playing all year. It's not just if we need to learn songs or anything, but we want to get used to working with a PA again because we've been rehearsing in our little studio, which is two little 12-inch speakers and drums and bass and guitar. It's quite different to play with Monster billion-dollar watt system or something. I don't know. Yeah, so you're going to play in the uh, at Market Square the day before just to practice? I'm not sure. Oh. I mean, I, th- I think we're there to get set stuff up, but I don't know. Don't write that. I'm not sure. I don't want people hanging around. Oh, no. I, hell, I wasn't going to write it. I just want to know if I could come. Usually everyone doesn't like anyone there. I don't really care. Oh, okay. Mike, Mike is real... He's going, goddamn, if I'm working on harmonies, I don't want someone looking at me. Yeah, well, I think also what we're going to do is, is work out on the new songs we've got. We've got about four or five new songs, and that's real embarrassing to do in front of people. Because, you know, we haven't, we're not quite sure, like, how to end them. And things sound different to the PA. So once you get to hear yourself, it's like, oh, God, what a horrible bridge. Uh-huh. <laughs> we write that. <laughs> okay, so you don't want immediate feedback is what you're saying. You yeah. Wait till the next night when there's 15,000 people there. Yeah, when we were do, we, we rehearsed for a day or two days in um, Louisville, I guess it was was this year and uh, the last day like all the crew had met girls and stuff and they brought their friends all this. and so we're playing all of a sudden there's about 70 people watching us and we're going shit you know we haven't played in a place a year really except for the dates we did in Australia and Japan and a big place we've got new songs and you know and they're all watching us and just going oh god this is embarrassing <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and really it is sometimes it's embarrassing to do some of the things you have to do to be a fan so there are four or five new songs that, that you're going to play during this show we'll definitely have three and then there's another four or five on top of that that we're working on new um, REM songs or covers uh, our songs oh okay yeah okay. We, we, we write all the time and we just have had very little time to rehearse and so this month off we've been rehearsing every day Okay. And I got practice in about two hours. All right, let me just ask you one other thing, and I'll let you go. And that is, can you tell me about the songs, what they're called, or anything like that? Um, lyrically, Michael's still going through changes on them. I mean, it's kind of like he's still at the melody stage. Mm -hmm. you know, his the lyrics usually come last because he kind of has to fit it around what we do musically. Sound wise, let me think. We've got one that sounds kind of it's kind of Scottish. I don't know. It's at least it's it's kind of in the strange guitar tuning that I like. That it's got kind of it sounds like a bagpipe the guitar does. Thanks. Another one's kind of a rock and roll. Song. We got a couple. It's just hard to describe them. You know, they're, they're a little bit different than stuff we've done in the past. Uh -huh. Some of them are real droney. A couple of them. One of the only songs got a title. It's a song called "Belong." Belong. Yeah. B e l o n g. Yeah. Oh, okay. And pretty much everything that we've written so far has been major chord, but only a couple chords, less chords than we're used to writing with. I don't know why. Maybe it's because we write them in sound checks and that's where they come out. Mm -hmm. Belong is which kind of song? Is that the Scottish song? or is No, it that's the, just, uh, it's just a couple chords. Mm -hmm. Kind of a straight rock and roll thing? No, it's 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 not. A, it's somewhere in between ballad. It's kind of a weird rhythm thing. It's in just kind of circular riffs and circular background harmonies. It seems like the songs are getting more static as far as development chord-wise and getting more kind of out there as far as harmonies and melodies and stuff go. Who knows? We might not record any of this stuff, but it's always nice to have new songs. I remember we did tours for years where we'd do songs and never record them. People go, God, whatever happened to that song? And I kind of like that. Oh, we just didn't do it. Do you, do you remember back several years touring with Gang of Four? Sure. I, the, the, yeah, they were big influence on us. Yeah, I just wondered, because that's when I saw you, and I was wondering what that was like. Great. You know, um, we really didn't like opening for anybody, but um, <clears throat> we kind of decided, well, we'll work with bands that we respect if they'll take us. We worked with Beat and the Gang of Four because, you know, ideologically they were correct. I mean, it wasn't like when we opened for Bow Wow Wow a couple of times, that was so much crap. Yeah. I mean, you know, not only did I not like the band, but they were fascists, you know. <laughs> and, um, those, I like the music a lot. I like the dynamic of the groups, the fact that they wrote together and that they were all equal to one another like we are. Mm -hmm. And I think we learned a lot from those guys, you know, in, in the positive and the negative. Yeah. We learned both, both of those bands broke up through, you know, despair over not being successful and greed and, and arguments within the band. We learned not to do that, but we also learned idealistically a way to, to be in a band as a, as a kind of uh, commune, I hate to use that word, but, the, you know, four people working together as opposed to the star and his backup guys. There were... Uh bitter, I think, at each other by the time. At the end, you know, they're getting back together. Oh, really? I'm not sure who's in the band. I think it might be just John and Andy. Michael has a demo tape that they're doing. It sounds real good. Yeah, that's that's good. Well, it's good to know, I guess, but uh, I guess everybody gets back together eventually. <laughs> well, I doubt they'll make as much as the, as the Who or the Rolling Stones or whatever. Yeah, well, that'll be one of those things. But yeah. anyway, well, I really appreciate it, Dave. You've been very generous with your time. And, sure, no uh, problem at all. Thanks. I'll see you when you're here. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tapes Archive podcast. Please remember you can always find more information about the show and the individual episodes at our website, thetapesarchive.com. Until next time, the vault is closed. <laughs>